You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. Romans chapter 16, we're going to read through it before we get into the word this morning. It says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Centria, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever uh, she may need from you, for she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their house. Greet my beloved Apionetus, who was the first convert to Christ in Asia. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. Greet Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and my beloved Stachys. Greet Apellus, who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. Greet my kinsman Herodian. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of, of Narcissus. Greet those, who, uh, those workers in the Lord, Tryphania and Tryphosa. Greet the beloved Persis, who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. Greet Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Patrobus, Hermas, and the brothers who are with them. Greet Philogus, Julia, Nereus, and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. That's probably the only time we're going to read through that today. That's like the worst nightmare for someone that has to read publicly Scripture. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, do they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your, your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. But I want, to, I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. So do Lucius and Jason and Sosipater, my kinsmen. I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, who is host to me and the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, and our brother Cordus greet you. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. Father, we praise you and thank you once again this morning. We thank you for the written word. We thank you for the opportunity to study together this morning as we seek to live out our faith throughout the week. I pray that you would encourage us through our gathering time this morning. Uh, Father, I pray that you would challenge us through the leading of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Father, I pray that as we examine the conclusion here to the book of Romans, uh, that we would be challenged as a church. Father, I pray that we would be challenged in the area of unity. I pray that we would be challenged in the area of mission. God, we pray that you would ultimately honor yourself and glorify yourself through sovereign hope here in this community. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're part of the kids' class, you can be dismissed to the back. Jessica will be taking you. As we come to the end of the book of Romans, Paul begins to kind of tie together finally what he's been um, highlighting for us over the past few weeks. In chapters 14 and 15, we've spent a lot of time talking about uh, the liberty that's available to Christians, but also the need for unity in the midst of that liberty. And sometimes what that means is those that are considered the stronger brothers being willing to give up areas of freedom for the sake of those that are weaker in some of these areas, those that aren't as comfortable with Christians participating in certain activities. 
The stronger brother is willing to give up the right to do those things for the sake of unifying the body. Uh, that there's bigger things that are important uh, versus some of these freedoms that we've discussed over the past few weeks. Uh, we said that in Romans 14, Paul doesn't try to uh, minimize the diversity in the faiths. He says there's people with strong faith, there's people with weaker faith. There are people that are going to say that some things are okay. There are going to be others that say some things aren't okay. And we highlighted some of those in the context of when Romans was written. We talked about the meat. We talked about the days, the Sabbath versus no Sabbath. We talked about things that are relevant for today. Uh, the use of alcohol, the use of tobacco, uh, tattoos, different things like that that are considered um, gray areas, gray issues in Christian culture. Can a Christian do this? Can a Christian not do this? We said that Paul ultimately encourages us to embrace that diversity, um, to not despise each other, to not look down upon each other, to not judge each other, but instead to embrace the fact that we see things differently. We said in order for us to, to be unified in the midst of disagreement, we've got to pursue doctrinal stability, meaning our, our beliefs and understandings about these issues have to be shaped by God's word, not how we were raised. And we have to get away from, I was told this, I was taught this, versus this is what scripture says about this. Um, so the weak brother a lot of times can be encouraged to have a stronger faith when he examines scripture for himself versus just relying on traditions that he's been taught. So we, we pursue doctrinal stability. So if we're all studying the same word of God, the hope and the belief is, is that we're going to continue to move closer and closer to being unified in what God's word has to say. We grip the things that we abstain from very strongly. Okay, So we don't just go into it and say, okay, I was clearly raised wrong or taught wrong. I need to radically change everything that I think and believe. We said, no, that the, the conscience has to catch up with what you're being told now, potentially, through Scripture. That your conscience is what ultimately has to guide you in some of these areas. So, you're raised all your life to believe that alcohol is wrong for a Christian. You now see that there's liberty and freedom. It doesn't mean that you then go out and begin to drink alcohol, even if you're still convicted about it. That the conscience has to catch up with your knowledge in your head now. And so, that, that time gap may be long, it may be short. Um, it was uh, over a course of years for me, as I began to see things in Scripture, began to uh, let go of some perceptions that I had had previously, but even in letting go for the fact that other people could participate in it, there was still conviction that I could not. And I shared with you some last week, I, I, don't, I don't see any issue uh, with a Christian potentially um, enjoying alcohol responsibly, enjoying tobacco responsibly, enjoying tattoos responsibly. Um, I personally have chosen not to participate in those things, not because I'm convicted about them, but I just haven't seen the benefit in them. Um, just haven't seen the ultimate benefit to embrace that as a part of my life uh, at this point. Um, and I told you that that's really where you want to be. You want to be in that category where you see these things as free for the Christian, so it frees me from judging other people that do these things, so you don't have to hide these activities from me if you participate in them, uh, but it's also where you want to get to where you're okay with not doing them, that if you find out that you're in a setting where, hey, this is a big issue for the people that I'm hanging out with, that it's not something that you have to force and, and drive towards somebody, that you can just say, hey, if that's a big deal to you, I'm not going to participate in it. I don't have to do these things, uh, so we grip those convictions strongly and then we're willing to, to uh, let go of these freeing liberty-type activities. We, we hold to that very loosely. We hold to it very loosely. It's not something that we're going we're gonna to die over. Um, we want to be able to unify uh, with people in our church that maybe don't see things quite like we do right now. Romans 15 continued this idea uh, of the stronger and the weaker. And we said ultimately the responsibility in chapter 15 is all about the strong brother uh, seeking unity with the weaker brother, being willing to give up things. We said that ultimately, if we're going to be unified, strong brother has to act like Christ. Uh, he has to bear with the weak. He has to seek the needs of the weak over his own needs. And then last week, I gave you some other factors to consider as you're kind of wrestling through. Is, is, is this something that I feel uh, free to do? Drink alcohol, use tobacco, anything else you want to fill in the blank with. We talked about uh, the neighbor factor. Will it offend a fellow Christian? We talked about the missional factor. Will it offend a non-Christian? 
we talked last week, there are some activities that non-Christians believe Christians should not participate in. And by participating in them, we harm the gospel. Um, so we have to ask that question. The master factor, is this something that will enslave me? The health factor, is this something that will cause harm to me physically? The legal factor, is this something that would violate the law that I've been placed under, the, the governmental law? And then we talked last week, too, about how Paul highlighted the maturity of this church in Rome because of their commitment to the word. And we said that Paul highlights some of his upcoming plans, and we see how committed he is to the word and how committed he is to growing the kingdom, not just strengthening the kingdom. He says, I'm going places where people haven't heard the gospel. That that's ultimately my goal. I'm excited about the churches that have been planted. I'm excited about those that have responded to the gospel. But he eventually says, my work here is complete. My work here is done. I've got to move on. And it reminds me of why we're here and why we've planted Sovereign Hope. We're excited about people that come that are already believers. Ultimately, we want to be a place that's adding people to the faith, not just adding people from other churches. We've added people since we started Sovereign Hope, but we can't take credit for any of these people. You can't take credit for, for Angel and Sarah and Catherine that have come to our church. They were Christians prior to coming. They were strong Christians prior to coming. We rejoice that they're here. We rejoice that they are part of our church family. But we can't take credit. Paul says, I, I'm building off of other people's foundations if I stay here. I've got to move on. I've got to go find areas where people haven't heard Christ. And I told you that as a church, we need to be challenged in that direction. And the elders specifically need to be challenged in that direction. How are we going to be faithful to take the word to places where people have not heard Christ yet. That brings us to Romans 16. Paul's conclusion to this great book that is such a foundational piece to understanding the gospel and what the gospel means for our life. And Ultimately, I think what Paul highlights for us in this chapter is how the believer should act towards hostility. He's been talking about unity over the past couple of chapters. Now he highlights how to respond to hostility, those factors that would seek to destroy the unity that the church is seeking to create. So for a church to remain unified in its diversity and missional in its efforts. So that's, that's what we highlighted last week. We want unity and we want a missional environment here. We want a church that embraces the fact that we're going to see things that Scripture's not clear about differently, but we want to be unified in that, so we want to be a welcoming environment where people can come, they can believe differently, and that's okay. They come here, we're, we're unified on the apostles' teachings, the apostles' doctrine, and we're missional with that, that we're seeking to promote that and push that to the ends of the earth. How do we maintain that focus? A couple of points that I think Paul alludes to here in this closing chapter, and if you're not careful, you come to this, you're studying through a book of the Bible, you come to this section and you say, okay, I'm practically done. This is just a long list of names. This is Paul wrapping it up. There's not a whole lot here to study. And yet there's a lot of truth that can be gained and pulled out from this chapter, as I hope we'll see this morning. For us to remain unified and missional, three things that I want to highlight for us this morning. Number one is to be intentional to welcome. Be intentional to welcome. Paul says in verse 1 here, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Centria, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you, for she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. Be intentional to welcome. The first thing in your notes there, embrace new servants. Embrace new servants. This goes back to what we were just talking about. There are going to be people that come to our church that are already solid servants of Christ. We don't take credit for them. We don't, we don't believe that our church has grown because we've added people that were already Christians, but we still need these people, right? Paul says, I'm sending somebody to you. I'm sending this, this lady, Phoebe, to you. She is a servant in this church. She is a faithful servant. You guys welcome her in the faith. You guys embrace her in a way that's worthy of, of a church embracing somebody like this. So he encourages them. He says, you've got to welcome these new people that come to your church, these people that are already saints, these people that are already Christians. 
There's a responsibility to be very welcoming and to include these people. It's difficult to come into a new church, especially when you come from a previous good church setting, right? You, you, you know, Sarah's going through this right now. You, you leave a church setting where you've invested, you've been, you've loved, God has used it in your life. You, you, get, uh, you get moved to a different location, and now the process starts over. I've got to find a church family to align myself with. And so often churches don't realize how big of a transition that is for somebody, how difficult of a transition. You've been ripped away from your spiritual family, and you've been placed in a new setting, new job, new surrounding, everything's new. The most important thing for that person to survive spiritually is to be plugged into a new church family. Paul says, this lady Phoebe's coming. You've got to welcome her, embrace her. Be hospitable to, 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 towards her. Let her get infiltrated into everything that you're doing. You guys are a close-knit group. Great things are going on. You're, you're, you're prioritizing the word, Paul says. But include other people in that as they show up at your church. And that's got huge ramifications for us. You know, so many of us came already connected to plant a church here. And now new people come that they don't know what Mount Gilead is when we talk about Mount Gilead. They don't know... The, the history that, that we've all gone through together. But they certainly want to be as much of a part of it now as they can be. Uh, and, and so we've got a responsibility to, to be sensitive to that, to say, okay, what we're doing is great, but we need more people to come and be a part of this as the Lord leads them here. As people, and we don't, we don't make a big deal about uh, advertising our church. We don't want to draw as many people in as possible, but I believe the Holy Spirit's led certain individuals to this church that was already uh, a believer. They found us in different ways. Uh, they've been diligent to find a church family, and, and God's led them here. And as God brings people here, it's important that we embrace them, that we welcome them in a way that's worthy of the saints. This lady, Phoebe, who is she? Paul says she's a servant of the church at Centuria. The literal translation would be that she's a deacon of this church. Now, this is probably the one area that we are not as conservative in as maybe a lot of like-minded churches. Um, I believe that, that, scripture is, um, that Scripture affords the opportunity for women to function as deacons or what was traditionally called deaconess in our church. The, the original Greek has no feminine, masculine word for this. Um, but when you look at this passage, um, Phoebe, a servant of the church at Centuria, I think there's some reasons to believe that this uh, is not just alluding to a, a normal servant, but alluding more to an official position as a servant. Some reasons for that. First of all, um, the word can be used generally and specifically. In Romans 13.4, a passage that we've, we've looked at recently, talking about the government and the, the authorities that are placed over us. In Romans 13.4, it says, talking about rulers that are placed over us, for he is God's servant for your good. Okay, so that's a, that's a functioning role of the governmental authorities that are placed over us. They are considered servants of God. They carry out his responsibilities. Uh, but in places like Philippians 1.1, 1, 1, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, it's the same word. But the implication there is that we're talking more about an office versus a function. So the governmental authorities function as servants. Here in Philippians, uh, Paul is highlighting people that are actually serving in an official office that we refer to as deacons. Um, so it can be used both ways. So we have to admit that Scripture is not clear as to whether Phoebe is functioning in the official office or just functioning as a servant. The context, I believe, determines the translation. So with Paul aligning her specifically, the way that it's phrased, the way that it's worded, uh, it comes across as more official than just, hey, she, she does things in that church. She serves faithfully in that church. Uh, it comes across more as a position 
um, of service, of an office of service within this church. If you go to 1 Timothy 3 and read through the qualifications, qualifications of an elder or an overseer, qualifications of a deacon, uh, a lot of translations will break into that and talk about the qualifications of a deacon's wife. A lot of the translations will say that. Deacons' wives need to be these, these things. But in the original language, the original way that it's worded, it talks about the women need to be this way. Um, and so there's some, uh, translators take some liberty there to say, oh, it must be meaning deacons' wives. It'd be odd for Paul to say that deacons' wives have qualifications, but not elders' wives. Right? I mean, the elder is a, is a more important position, a more uh, responsible position than a deacon. And so reading through that, the translation can also mean women deacons are to be these things. And so here at this church, we, we've embraced that. We believe that deacons are leading servants. And so Melissa serves in that role for us here at Sovereign Hope. Uh, both Ben, Chris, and Melissa serve in that role. Um, and, and Melissa does a great job of, of leading our hospitality ministries, whether that's showers or meals or, um, yeah, showers and meals, those type of things. Um, so today, Melissa's been responsible for putting together our shower for Jessica uh, and Alex. And so uh, in the same way Melissa serves faithfully here at Sovereign Hope, Phoebe was serving faithfully at this church here in Centuria. And Paul says, embrace her. Embrace her because of her faithfulness. Now, why was she being sent to Rome? Most scholars would believe that she is being sent, first of all, to deliver the book of Romans to the churches here. So she's going to be tasked with the responsibility of taking this. This is a huge task, and and this is worth noting because so often people want to label conservative Christians as demeaning towards women because we don't believe that women can function in every role within the church like a man can. We believe that God has given the, the uh, shepherding authority to males only. And it can be easy to then think that that's, well, that's demeaning to women. You don't see women as equal. This is a huge responsibility that she's tasked with here. This does not minimize the, the, the function of a woman at all. Paul is, Paul is tasking her with carrying what, what some would say is one of, if not the most important New Testament books. There wouldn't have been multiple copies of this. I mean, she's tasked with carrying the copy. It's, it's most likely that Paul understood this is inspired. This has come directly from God. And she's going to be tasked with the responsibility to take it and carry it to Rome. It also seems that she's been sent for some other purposes that aren't made known to us. Paul says to help her in whatever way she may, and in whatever way she may need from you. Um... There's been speculation that she's an important businesswoman and she's coming to Rome on business matters as well. And so uh, in addition to coming for those purposes, she's bringing the letter of Romans uh, to these people. We're not exactly sure why she may have been coming for her own business, but Paul's very clear to do whatever we can as a church to help her, to help meet her needs. And he, and he highlights the fact that, hey, the reason we should, if for no other reason, is that she's a faithful woman to do this type of thing. Uh, she is a hospitable person in her setting. It's what the idea of patron means. It means one who, who meets the needs of others, uh, a lot of times financially. And so he's saying she has a history of helping others, so be faithful to return the favor to her as she comes to you. We embrace new servants like Phoebe, those that God brings to our church that are already Christians, already been faithfully serving him that for a short period of time, maybe a long period of time, come to Sovereign Hope, that we welcome them, we embrace them, we, we include them in what's already going on here within our church. But then secondly, we celebrate old servants. Not old from an age standpoint, but an old servant who's been here, who's been here for a long period of time, who's been faithful within this church so Paul commends Phoebe to him, tells him to welcome Phoebe, but then he does a roll call here and begins to uh, commend and encourage people that have already been in these churches in Rome that have been serving faithfully. I'm going to highlight a couple of them for you. There's not a whole lot given to us about these people. There's a lot of speculation and commentaries that want to um, kind of expound upon who these people possibly could have been. You know, maybe this was so-and-so, maybe this was so-and-so. And we're not going to spend a lot of time doing that today, but I do want to highlight to you some of the clear 
individuals that are presented here and who these individuals may have been or quite possibly were in the context of uh, the movement of Christianity in the book of Acts. We come first to verse 3, greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus. We know exactly who these individuals are. This is also uh, Priscilla. Um, We see her name mentioned here in two different ways. Uh, It's the same person. Uh, Prisca and Aquila, they're a, they're a, a married couple who are instrumental in the movement of Christianity in the book of Acts. We don't know a ton about them, but every time they pop up, they are doing something very faithful to the advancement of the gospel. Um, Paul considers them fellow workers in Christ Jesus, he says. They're companions in his labor. We highlighted last week in Acts 18.26, they were the couple that pulled aside Apollos, who, if we have a third son, may be named Apollos. Told you last week, start getting used to that name so when we say, here's Apollos, it doesn't sound as awkward as it sounds right now. Apollos, a man who was diligent in the word, he was skilled in the word, but still needed some discipleship to happen. This married couple pulls him aside and, and explains to him better the things of Christ. They were not just a married couple that that worked hard, but they were a married couple that took spiritual matters very seriously and embraced their responsibility to function as disciplers within the church. I mean, there's two ways that we really see them functioning in the book of Acts and through the epistles. They worked hard to provide for missionaries. They worked hard to provide for missionaries. I think we see that they gave money But ultimately, Paul highlights in verse 4, who risked their necks for my life. So not only are they willing to give money, they're willing to give their lives. They were a couple that gave money, but they also were willing to give their lives. They worked hard to provide for missionaries. And they worked so hard in such a way that Paul says, I give thanks for you, but all the churches of the Gentiles owe you thanks as well. Paul says other churches owe you. They owe you for the type of married couple that you've become. What does he mean by that? Well, I think, first of all, whatever they did, and and, and most think that this probably took place somewhere in Ephesus because Paul encountered a lot of uh, trouble and difficulty in the city of Ephesus. At some point, they stuck out and and risked their lives to, to, to save him. And I think Paul says, Every Gentile church that's been planted since then owes it to you. They they are spiritually in debt to you because you stepped out and did something that preserved me, kept me going, and because of that, my ministry has continued. So he says, uh, in theory, these other churches owe you a great deal of thanks because you have been faithful. It's continued my ministry, whether you've supported me financially, whether you've supported me uh, when I was in the midst of tribulation and trouble. You put yourself out there, and and other churches owe you a great deal of thanks because you've invested in them spiritually. Secondly, though, they've worked hard to serve in church planting. These guys have worked hard not just in providing for missionaries, but they've worked hard to serve in church planting. Look what else Paul says about these people. Greet also the church in their house. Now, we're not exactly sure how New Testament churches were organized. What we do know is they didn't typically have large facilities and buildings to come and gather in, especially in the midst of persecution. A lot of the churches gathered in homes, and it's possible that a lot of them fell under the umbrella of elder leadership within that town, but they had multiple locations to meet, so they would have met potentially like we do when we we meet with small groups. They would meet in those settings, but it all kind of fell under the umbrella of elder leadership that was responsible for a collection or a group of these uh, house churches. So whether they were hosting a small group, whether they were hosting a full-on church, we're not fully sure. If they're wealthy, they may have had a bigger location. There's been some archaeological evidence that, that houses were modified, the structures were modified to create more room for these church gatherings. But in whatever setting, these people were open uh, open to, to letting people come to their house and meet for these purposes, whether it was a small group, whether it was a church. It's possible as well that this wasn't the only time they did this. In 1 Corinthians sixteen nineteen, Paul is writing from Ephesus. So we know that, that um, 
Priscilla and Aquila, remember in Acts 18, they had to get out of Rome because the, uh, the emperor was tired of dealing with the Jewish movement and the Jewish controversy. And so he said, if you're Jewish, get out of here. So they had to flee for a while. We know that Paul meets up with them. In Acts, or 1 Corinthians 16, Paul's writing from Ephesus. Verse 19, the churches of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Prisca, together with the church in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. So this may not have been their first time around hosting a church or hosting a small group within their house. Uh, it may have been in multiple locations. These people, this married couple was invested. They were invested in the gospel. They didn't necessarily hold specific leadership positions. But in everything that they could do, they were invested in the gospel. And my encouragement this morning would be to our married couples, specifically our new married couples and those that are going to be married soon, to be this type of married couple. To be the type of married couple that's completely invested in the kingdom, completely invested in the gospel. Whether you're working hard to provide for missionaries, support missionaries, whether you're working hard to, to support church planting, that you're the type of married couple that can be counted upon for discipleship purposes, for financial purposes, that you're defined and described as someone who's completely invested, completely invested in the gospel. Paul commends this couple, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus. I give thanks for you. Be the type of married couple that other churches owe a thanks to that you're that invested, that not just this church owes you thanks for what you're doing, but other churches owe you thanks. That other churches owe you thanks for the investment that you've made in the kingdom. A couple other people to highlight to you. Apellus, down in, uh, let's see, where is he at? Verse 10, greet Apellus who was approved in Christ. The wordage there in the Greek uh, is very similar to what happens in James 1.12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. We've talked before that God allows us to go through trials and temptations and difficulties as an opportunity for us to prove our faith to prove our faith to the world. Doesn't earn our salvation, doesn't gain our salvation, doesn't uh, add to our salvation, but God uses difficulties so that as we come through those difficulties, it proves the validity of our faith to others. We're not told what happens in this man's life, but Paul alludes to something happening where he is now approved in Christ. Another guy to highlight to you is Rufus. Verse 13, greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. Now, I felt bad because one of my students, um, I was challenging him about being in the Word, and uh, he started texting me one night, and he's like, uh, he had overheard me having a discussion about Phoebe and her being potentially a woman deacon, and um, I was talking to somebody at school, and they were like, no way, like that, women don't serve as deacons. And I was like, well, maybe Phoebe was a deacon. And uh, So I guess that led him to kind of read through Romans 16. So he came down, and he was texting me. He's like, um, I think Rufus is the son of the guy who carried Jesus' cross. And I was like, well, why do you think that? He's like, I just think that that, that would be a cool story. Um, and so I was like, okay. And so I kind of went back and read through Romans 16, and I was like, I mean, there's no reason to really think that, so I don't know why he thinks that. Maybe he wasn't telling me that he had really studied it, because Mark 15, 21, and I texted him Saturday, and I said, I'm an idiot, I should have listened to you. Um, verse 21 says, And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. Now, there's times when people are mentioned multiple times in Scripture. So, so why, I mean, does that prove it? Maybe not, but when you look into it more and you realize Mark wrote to Rome. So he wrote to people in Rome. And, and when, you, when you name drop like this, you expect people to know who's being talked about, right? Like you don't just throw out names if nobody's going to know who you're talking about. Um, so, so I tend to lean towards thinking this is very possible, uh, that, that this guy Rufus, early on in his life, maybe he's with dad. Maybe he's with dad at the Passover, celebrating the Passover. And in the midst of the commotion, we know that Jesus pulls 
uh, somebody's uh, dad, whose name is Rufus, out of the crowd to, to carry the cross for Christ. Uh, and it's very possible it's this man that, that Paul highlights in Romans 16, um, that, that this had a profound effect on him uh, and radically changed his life. Because, again, Paul's writing to Romans, uh, writing, writing to people in Rome, this man Rufus. Mark's writing to Romans as well and, and name drops this guy as well. Maybe, maybe not. Cool story uh, to add there potentially. I love what Paul says about his mom, though. Also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. Rufus's mom became an important figure in Paul's life based on her service to him. And we've highlighted this idea before, but in Mark chapter 10, verse 29 and 30. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. Now, what, what does that mean? It means that when we've talked about this, that when we're saved, we're saved into a, a far bigger family than we can ever imagine. That, that we're now part of the body of Christ, which brings new family relationships that uh, maybe we've been deprived of in the past. We don't know anything about Paul's mom to my knowledge, so maybe this becomes a second mom to him, but maybe this becomes really the first time he's really had someone serving in his life this way. But he, he, for whatever reason, for whatever she's done in his life, highlights her as someone who he can call mom, who has functioned like a mom in his life. And that's one of the benefits and the joys that comes from following Christ, that we reap the benefits of so many others that join the body of Christ. And we only reap those benefits, though, when we're faithful to give out those benefits as a church member, right? And so, you know, it, it's a challenge to, to me this morning. To, it should be a challenge to us. What role are you playing in the family of Christ within this local church? You know, as guys, we've highlighted before, for whatever reason, there, there's a collection uh, of guys here who have been severely let down by their dads in their life. For, for whatever reason, uh, we've got a lot, of dad, a lot of guys in here who have been deprived of a lifetime of daddy investment. It's just not here. And yet what such a privilege of being a part of the body of Christ is that we can gain that, gain what we've missed from men in our church. But it only works if we function in that, in that role, in that capacity, if we embrace that. You know, I, I was having a conversation with, with Chris, you know, back on Father's Day. You know, and Chris doesn't have children of his own. But if you've spent any time with Chris and know anything about Chris, and I won't embarrass him, I won't embarrass him, I won't embarrass him by listing off all these accolades about him, but Chris has been faithful to be a dad to guys that don't have dads. And so he's embraced that. He's embraced that function, that role in the body of Christ to, to function as a dad to so many in the absence of not having his own children. And that is such a privilege and a benefit of being a part of the body of Christ. And so my encouragement and challenge to you is, is what role are you going to fulfill? Are you going to be the son that somebody needs to be able to invest in? Are you going to be the dad that needs to do the investing? Are you going to be the mom that needs to do the investing? Are you going to be the daughter that needs to receive the investing? Are you going to take advantage of the privileges? Are you going to be a part of the, the offering of those privileges? Paul says, this woman has functioned like a mom in my life. And I'm grateful for her. I'm thankful for her. Some implications from this section of, of the chapter. And again, it's, it's, a, it's a long list of names. What do, we, what do we draw from this? I think it's important to note as we've already said, Paul's never been to Rome, so how in the world does he know these people? How does he know these people when he's never been to this church? He's never been to Rome. Remember, he longs to go there. He longs to be a part of this church, longs to invest in this church, but he's never been there. How does Paul know so many of these people? 
He shows a level of intimacy here by not grouping them all together. He could just say to the saints in Rome, offer these, these greetings and welcomes to them. He's intentional about going through these people name by name. So it shows a, a level of intimacy here. How does he have that? How does he know these people by name? Some of them he probably met through dispersion. We talked about how some were forced to leave Rome for a time, and obviously Priscilla and Aquila have been able to make their way back there. So there may have been times where Paul interacted with these people uh, before they went to Rome. But I think there's also the possibility that these people, while he may not have ever physically met them, felt like he knew them because of reports he would get from those that he did know there. Okay, so we know he's close with Priscilla and Aquila. It's very possible that he, as he gets updates from them about how the church at Rome is doing, that they continue to highlight some of these people to where Paul feels like he knows these people. How he knows them, we're not very clear on, but what we do know is that he feels unified with them. He feels tied to them for two reasons. First of all, he had connected through service. He had connected through service. He considers these people fellow workers. They were unified through a common mission. He over and over talks about these guys working, working in the Lord, working in Christ, laboring, co-workers. Secondly, he had connected through suffering. He had connected through service. He had connected through suffering. In verse 7, greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen, and my fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. At some point, he had come in contact with these two. Potentially, he'd spent time locked up with these two. He'd served with these people. He had suffered with these people. Well, what, what bearing does that have on us? What, what does that look like for us? I think the, the quickest and the easiest way to feel connected to this church or wherever God leads you down the road, church-wise, the quickest way to feel connected is through serving and suffering together. Right? You don't feel connected by just coming on a Sunday morning. You can come Sunday morning, Sunday morning, Sunday morning, Sunday morning, and you're always going to feel on the outside, probably. The quickest way to feel connected to fill all in with a church family is to get in and serve with them. To serve with them. To do life with them, but to do ministry with them. To jump in and serve side by side outside these walls with them. And then secondly, to suffer with them. What does that look like? I think for us as a church, it looks like uh, suffering in accountability groups together. To be all in with your group. Say, look, we're different. We may not have everything in common, but we have the most important things in common. We have the most important things in common. And so I'm going to bear your burdens, and I'm going to hope that you're going to bear my burdens. And we're going to suffer as much as we can call it suffering together through our life by being invested in each other. Paul says, I've suffered with these people. I've served with these people. I love these people. You greet these people for me. He was connected to these people. He's never been there. So in some level, his service with them and his suffering with them has caused him to be very intimate with these people. Some questions for us to ask as we transition to the last portion of this chapter. Adam McLeod highlighted this on The City this week. Have I faithfully worked hard for the Lord? The remaining list of these individuals, they are highlighted and they are placed in this list because every single one of them is recognized for things that they had been doing. And none of them are really given specific things. It's just told that they are hard workers for the Lord. Hard workers for the Lord. And so I want to challenge you this morning as we get ready to leave is, are you the type of person that would be described that way? And think about it. Think about your schedule. Think about the effort that you put forth throughout the week, the, the things that cause you to be tired, right? Because all of us are tired. All of us are busy. You've, you're rarely will you meet somebody that says, I'm so refreshed all the time and I, I don't have a thing going on in my schedule, right? 
You, you don't meet people like that. It seems like every time you have a conversation with somebody, how you been? I've been busy and I'm tired, right? Like everybody's in that state. Obviously, some of us are more busy and more tired than others, but don't tell each other that, right? Because we all think that we're the most busy and most tired person in this church. But the question is, what are we busy with and what are we tired from? Because these people that are listed are tired and busy because they are working for the Lord and they are working hard for the Lord. It's okay to work hard at your job. It's okay hard to work hard in school. It's okay to be intentional in those areas. But how much more should we be intentional in our effort to work hard for the Lord? So think about it. Think about it for a minute. You're tired, you're busy, but what are you tired and busy from? How much of it can be tied to your service for the Lord? Remember Paul constantly in his epistles, I'm poured out for you. I've labored day and night for you. Is that how we can be described? Are we tired and are we busy because we are faithfully working hard serving the Lord? Secondly, have I faithfully prayed for our missionaries and supported them as a means of connecting with them to where they would know me? Have I faithfully prayed for our missionaries? Have I supported them so that they feel connected to me? We don't have a a lot of missionaries that we support at Sovereign Hope, right? We're we're a small church. We discussed very early on, we could spread ourselves really thin and send everybody 10 bucks a month and just have a plethora of missionaries and say that we're reaching the ends of the earth. Or we could say, this is the money that we have to send monthly. Let's really make it count. Let's really really make it count for somebody. And so we've initially invested that in uh, the guys who served as our external elders who continue to labor in the gospel. They're our North American missionary families, if you want to call them that. And, And granted, there are deep ties that I have with them because of personal relationships. I want you as a church family to have those same deep ties with them. That can happen through prayer. They're all in the city. They all have city memberships. They see what's going on in our church. You can have that type of relationship with them if you desire. It was so encouraging. Uh, Tiffany and Adam Long are in North Carolina on vacation, and they went to a rodeo last night. And and Tiffany texted me a picture. They ran into Spencer and Amy Davis at the rodeo in North Carolina. And, And so there was a picture of Spencer and Adam at the rodeo, and she's like, I had no idea we were only 40 minutes from Snowbird. She's like, we're coming back up here in a few weeks, and we're actually going to go as a family and spend a day at Snowbird and, and, and see what, what's going on there and uh, you know, get a better picture of what we talk about on a Sunday morning. She said it was so encouraging for Adam to just spend some time with Spencer there at the rodeo. I, I want that for you guys, and it's available. It's available to you guys. You know, as, as a church, we're invested in them. I, I told you on the city, like, we were, we were able, our member care money is built up a lot right now, and so we were able to send money to help with the adoption that Spencer and Amy are working through right now. You guys can invest as much as you want to to where these missionaries feel connected to you from a distance, right? I mean, Tyson's only met uh, the Stapleton family a few times, but when they email our church, they email Tyson, they email Tyson because Tyson has invested in them. Tyson has taken the time to, to show love to them. They feel very connected to Tyson. And they correspond with Tyson all the time when they have needs because they feel very connected because he's made that effort as well. Last question. Chris, you're going to kill me because I keep calling you out on this. Will Chris Henson long to see you based on how you've serviced him here while he's been here? Chris leaves in a year. He's moving to Uganda. He's picking up and he's going. And my hope is that Chris doesn't feel connected to a handful of us. That when he's over there, he doesn't just miss a handful of us. That when he sends email, it's not just email to a handful of us. That as a church family that we've invested in him, that we've taken the time to to be intimate with him spiritually so that when he's taken away from us, It's all of us that he longs to see. It's all of us that he longs to commune with. It's all of us that he wants to get on a plane to come see him. How faithful are we being with our missionaries and those that we're trying to support? How connected do they feel to us? Because they need to feel connected. They long to feel connected. As they labor and work hard, they want to know that they've got people invested in them and their ministries as well. All right, last two things. Be intentional and welcoming. 
Secondly, be diligent to watch. Be diligent to watch. Paul highlights all these good guys and all the unity that comes from that, and then he cautions the churches at Rome to be careful for those that would seek to destroy their unity. He says in verse 17, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. Paul says, be diligent to watch. Three things about how we watch. First, we're vigilant. Be vigilant. Paul says, watch out for the enemy that wants to destroy you. Acts 20. Verse 27. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish every one with tears. Paul says, be careful, be alert, be on guard. These people are coming to destroy the unity that you're fighting for. And they look good, right? They're not going to be blatant uh, false teachers that we're going to be concerned about. There are those that are out there in, in mainstream uh, Christianity, we, we label that loosely, that are obvious false teachers. But then there are others that are really well disguised that we have to be just as alert for. Just as alert for. And Paul says, be careful, be vigilant to watch for these. Who needs to watch? And what do we watch for? Look what Paul says. And then I want us to think through, are we a, a, a target? Paul says, For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. I think Adam highlighted this as well as he was studying through this. Paul tells them to be on guard because of their resounding obedience and effectiveness. Paul says, everybody knows about your obedience. He highlights this back in Romans chapter 1. He says, your faith is known by everybody. And now he's telling them to be cautious because this is exactly the type of church that the enemy comes after. The obedient church and the effective church. Because they're, they're causing a dent, right? They're, they're affecting Satan's kingdom. They are rescuing people from darkness into light. And so that, that throws up the red alert for the enemy. Here's an obedient church. Here's an effective church. That's the one that we need to pervert. So let's send our false teachers. Let's send our false doctrine that direction. Let's wreck their unity Let's wreck their unity so that they're no longer obedient, so they're no longer effective. So I want us to be vigilant to watch for false teachers, but I desperately want us to be a church that false teachers target. I want us to be a church that false teachers target because I want us to be an obedient church and an effective church. I want us to sound the alarm for the enemy. I want the enemy to say, we've got to wreck the unity at Sovereign Hope because they're obedient and they're effective, and that's an issue for us. That's why Paul tells them to be vigilant and to be watchful because he knows, I'm hearing about you guys. You're effective. You're obeying. You're in the Word. You've prioritized the Word. You are missional. Everybody's starting to know about you, which means you need to be on guard because the enemy knows about you as well. What do we watch for? Those that cause divisions? And those that create obstacles, Paul says. Those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine you've been taught. What does he mean by that? There are teachers that want to come in that will want to divide us doctrinally. Okay, they want to divide us in our belief system. But then there's also those that want to come in that will create obstacles, which means they want to wreck our unity practically. The create obstacles is the same wordage going on in Romans 14, 20 about don't be a stumbling block to your weaker brother. So in the context, it's very likely that Paul is thinking about people who abuse freedom. Because he says they're the type of people that serve their appetites, right? 
So he says, be very leery of those that want to come in and potentially wreck your unity because they want to be a stumbling block to your weaker brothers. They want to come in and push their freedom, and by doing so, they wreck the gospel and your efforts. Back in Romans 14, 20. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. So it's not just the, the scholarly teacher that we have to be aware of, someone that comes into our church and, and starts to lead a, a small group that, that deviates from the doctrines of the apostles. It can be somebody that don't know jack about the Bible that comes into our church and wants to smoke and drink and do all this other stuff, and it wrecks our unity because of how it's pushed upon our church family. Paul says, welcome Phoebe. She's coming into your church. Don't welcome other people that come into your church that want to cause divisions and create obstacles. So we have to be very careful. We have to be very careful about who comes into our church. There are some people that we need to brace with open arms. Get in here. Get in here and be a part of us and do everything that we're doing. We want to love on you and embrace you and show hospitality to you. There's others that Paul says, you avoid these people. Don't try to work through their issues. You get them out of your church because they want to wreck your unity. And they're sent by the enemy to divide you doctrinally, to divide you practically with the obstacles they want to create. We're to be separate from them. We're to avoid them. Unity never replaces purity. Unity never replaces purity. In the name of unity and love, we never sacrifice purity. Too many people on Facebook, you'll see, don't call out false teachers. We all need to be one. We all need to embrace everybody. We need to love each other. No, call out your false doctrines. Call out your false teachers. We don't embrace unity and forsake purity. Be separate and be discerning. Be discerning, Paul says. He says, I want you to be wise to what is good, innocent to what is evil. Wise to what is good, innocent to what is evil. Know your stuff. Be wise to what is good. Be doctrinally sound. Saturate yourself with the truth. But be innocent to evil, which originally means not knowledgeable, or be beginners in what is evil. 1 Corinthians 14, 20 has the same idea. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be Mature. I can't help but think in context that Paul wants them to be innocent and somewhat ignorant even in these false teachings. Right? It can be so tempting. Hey, I had a Jehovah's Witness guy come to my door. I had a Mormon come to my door. I'm going to spend some time studying Jehovah's Witness beliefs or I'm going to spend a lot of time studying the Mormon beliefs. And I'm not so sure that Paul would say, don't do that. Don't do that. Who cares what they believe? Know what you believe so that when they come knocking on your door, you pick up real quick on what is not what you believe. You don't need to spend a whole lot of time studying evolution and studying Mormonism and study Jehovah's Witness. I don't have time for that, right? I'm busy and I'm tired. I don't have time to be studying other people's religions. I don't have enough time to study my own, right? Like I have to fight to find time to be in the word, the word that I believe. I don't have time to fight to be in somebody else's word, and I don't have to be. I don't have to be. I don't have to be equipped with Jehovah's Witness doctrine and Mormon doctrine and anybody else's doctrine to be effective with the gospel when they come knocking on my door. I know who Jesus is, and I know what the gospel is. And I can tell real quick when you're deviating from either one of those two. Be innocent to what is evil. Don't feel like you have to be knowledgeable about what everybody else believes. Paul says, be wise to what is good. Be innocent to what is evil. And then lastly, number three, which is what we'll wrap up with, be faithful to worship. Paul warns him about these false teachers, comforts them in verse 20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. It's God who will ultimately win unity for us for eternity. And there'll be a great battle where he does that. And so peace won't come immediately, but peace will come when Satan, Satan is ultimately crushed, something that was prophesied in Genesis 3.15. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Paul highlights those that are with him that also want to send greetings. And then verse 25, Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel 
in the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through prophetic writings has been made known to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God, to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God, be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. Two things about worshiping. First of all, find strength in the gospel. As we worship, we worship because of the gospel. That's why we choose the songs that we do. That's why Tyson labors to choose the songs that we do so that it reflects on the truths of the gospel. We worship on the grounds of the gospel. And Paul says, Now him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel. Be diligent to reflect on the gospel personally. Right? So we never graduate from the gospel. We need to return to the gospel constantly. We fight sin with the gospel. It's how we don't fall back into a legalistic mindset of God only loves me if I obey. It's the gospel that reminds us even in the midst of our sinful failures during the week that we have been saved not because of our performance but because of Christ's performance. And while you gave in to sin today, Christ never did. And so we always come back to the gospel. It's what strengthens us. is what perseveres us. And we have to focus on that personally. But then secondly, be diligent to hear the gospel corporately. He strengthens us according to the gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. So it's not just that we personally reflect on the word. We need to corporately hear the word. It's why we do what we do on a Sunday morning. We preach the word because we need to hear the word in that setting. It's the preaching of Jesus Christ that keeps us going. It's what encourages us. It's what strengthens us. We find strength in the gospel, and then lastly, we find encouragement in his wisdom. The gospel plan flows from an all-wise God. Verse 27, to the only wise God be glory forevermore. The gospel plan, and that's what we've seen from Romans 1-16. through I told you it was a unique letter in the sense that it was more of a doctrinal dissertation on the gospel versus a direct personal letter about what was going on in a specific church. And Paul lays out the gospel, 1-16, through and we said there's that, that stuff in the middle that we, you would think, all that stuff about Israel that you could pull out and just say that's not important, and yet we saw how important it is, 9, 10, and 11. Understanding how God's people, Israel, fits into the overall plan of the gospel. That plan described in 1 through 16 results in the glory of God. He's the only wise God. Be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. My hope and desire is that in reflecting on Romans over these past 16 weeks, and and as we continue to come back to Romans, because I told you, Romans is our foundation for how we understand most of the New Testament. And as we continue to go through books of the Bible and learn more about Christ, we'll constantly come back to the book of Romans. It helps us understand other passages of Scripture deeply. But my hope is that this isn't just an attempt to fill your head with knowledge about what the book of Romans is about. It's got to lead to God's glory in your life. It's got to lead to increased trust in the truth that we've studied, the truth that we've learned got to lead to us being unified as a church, unified in a missional purpose to reach the ends of the earth with the gospel. That starts with us being faithful, hard workers within the church. Whether we're single and we're, we're embracing the fact that this is my family, or whether we're married and we're functioning like Priscilla and Aquila and becoming faithful married couples that are, that are working and laboring in the way that they're described that we're unified for a common mission, for God's glory. Let's pray, and Tyson's going to come, and we're going to sing together in response to the word. Father, we are thankful that the individuals that we've highlighted this morning were hard at work. Father, I know that if we had the time, we could trace our spiritual heritage back to some of these individuals that their commitment to the gospel, their commitment to discipleship, their commitment to church planting, their commitment to going places where, where Christ had never been named, 
ultimately led to our salvation. And so while Priscilla and Aquila were owed thanks by many churches, Father, we know that these people that we've discussed this morning, we all owe them thanks for their faithfulness. And so, God, we rejoice that you have worked in our life centuries later, that the Holy Spirit has quickened us to respond to the gospel. And, Father, I pray that we would be just as faithful with the gospel as these individuals were, not for our own accolades and not for our own credit, but, Father, we want to be a church. We want to be a church made up of individuals that are working so hard, striving so hard for the gospel, investing so much in the kingdom that in theory other churches, other individuals owe thanks to what you've done in our life. And so ultimately we desire these things for your credit, for your glory, for your accolades. And so Father, I pray that you would challenge us in the area of unity, challenge us in the area of mission. Father, I pray that we would be the type of church that is targeted by the enemy, that we are a threat. So God, we're asking for you to work in our midst, but we recognize that we don't sit passively back and wait for you to work. That it's a matter of us embracing our responsibility. That we have a role to play in this, and we thank you and praise you for, for including us in your plan, in our salvation but then also to choosing to include us in the furtherance of your plan as we have the opportunity to spread the gospel, make disciples, as we wait for Jesus to return for his family. So, Father, as we sing today, as we worship you through song, I pray that you would be honored, you would be glorified, and we would be challenged to embrace what we sing about throughout the rest of this week and the weeks to come. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.